0: There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language, writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I have an extra special show. We're going to talk about English eponyms, like how the saxophone was named after Adolf Sax, and I'll mix that in with eponym stories from listeners. And now on to eponyms. An eponym is a word that's based on a person's name. For example, Adolphe Sax was a Belgian instrument maker who brought a new instrument to a Victorian event in 1851 called the Great Exhibition. His main job was making flutes and clarinets, and his invention, which looked something like a mashup of those two instruments, was dubbed the saxophone. Other things that were named after people that you might know about include Braille, the language of raised dots that blind people can use to read, invented by Louis Braille, scientific terms like Fahrenheit, Celsius, Pasteurize, Ampere, Ohm, Volt, and Watt, all named after famous scientists, and terms we've covered before in the podcast or in my books like Guillotine, Teddy Bear, and Boldler Guillotine, named after Joseph Guillotine, who was opposed to the death penalty but lobbied for the device to be used for beheadings during the French Revolution because it was more humane, teddy bears named after U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt after he refused to shoot a cute captive bear on a hunting trip, and Boldler eyes coming from Thomas Boldler and his sister Harriet, who liked to edit words they found offensive out of Shakespeare. You can read more about each of those at com. And today, I have more interesting eponym stories, including stories from our listeners.
2: Hi, uh, my name is uh, Biddy, and I'm in North Carolina. I have two family uh, words that we've used all our lives. One is Estelle as a verb. Um, we had a maid whose name was Estelle. She always liked to stack things up to make the room look neat. And my father started asking where something was, and then when he couldn't find it, he would say, it's been estelled, which means the maid uh, hid it in a pile of papers. And my brother actually grew up and became an adult, and he was in college, and he used that verb, and he realized it was just in our family that we used it. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye.
1: Thanks, Biddy! One reason I'm doing all these eponym stories today is that I noticed that they were a trend in the stories people were calling in about their family words, and Biddy's contains another one of those trends—children who don't realize a word is exclusive to their family until they grow up. It seems like that's not a rare occurrence. Here's one you'll find in the dictionary that you may not have known was named after a person—cardigan— It was named after the Earl of Cardigan, who was very particular about everything related to his military unit, from drills and rules to his uniforms. In the famous Battle of the Light Brigade during the Crimean War in the 1850s, he wore a blue knitted waistcoat trimmed with gold. When he returned from the war, he was hailed as a hero, and his style of waistcoat became popular. Later, it came out that his performance in the war bordered on incompetent, but by then it seems the sweater and the name cardigan had stuck. With the Industrial Revolution, it became easier to make knitted clothes, and in the 1920s, Coco Chanel made the cardigan something women could wear, too. Fashion historians say she embraced the design because she didn't like messing up her hair by pulling on a regular sweater. But although Chanel may have expanded the market for the button-up sweater, we owe the name to Lord Cardigan. Here's another one from a listener.
2: Hi, this is Heidi Thielander, nay Lindert, from originally Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. And I have a FAMILAC story uh, about my family, the Linderts, who lived in Oconomowoc. Um, We have a family verb, which is to Judy. My mother's name is Judy, and she always had little snacks like crackers and breadsticks in her purse, and also things like napkins and the little single packaged hand wipes from restaurants and many other things. And whenever we were someplace that had these free small things, think shampoo at a hotel or soap from the hotels, she would take some extra and throw them in her purse. So we started calling that Judying as a verb and for 40 years we have uh, continued to use that term for example let's judy some of those plastic utensils for our picnic or oh there she goes judying again and uh we still use that and actually have had some um extended family members begin to use the term people that know my mom and uh it's pretty funny when people uh hear us talking about Judy and things. They're not really too sure what to make of that. So, that's my family-like story. Have a great day. Love your podcast.
1: Thanks, Heidi. And you may have noticed at the beginning of her message, she used the word nay. It was a little hard to hear, so I might not have it exactly right, but it sounded like Heidi Delander nay-lindered. So, if you're wondering what that means, nay is a direct borrowing from French, where the word means born. You put it before a name to indicate that it was someone's previous name or title. For example, my maiden name is Coughlin, so if that mattered, you could refer to me as Mignon Fogarty, née Coughlin. It doesn't have to be a personal name, though. It could be something else. Here's an example from the San Francisco Chronicle. Quote, Royal Dutch Shell and Arco BP, née British Petroleum, are European companies. Unquote. So essentially, they're saying BP, born British Petroleum, but now known as BP. Okay, here's another established eponym. I bet a lot of you didn't know that nicotine is named after Jean Nicot, N-I-C-O-T, a trusted notary of the French royal family in the 1500s, and the writer of one of the first French dictionaries. During his travels as the French ambassador to Portugal— He received a plant that had originated in what's now Florida in the United States, and he saw that the powder from the plant greatly improved users' mood, and he believed it had powerful healing properties. Knowing of the foul disposition in migraines of Catherine de Medici, he sent her some powdered leaves, and she loved it, dubbing it Ambassador's Powder. It made its way around Europe, becoming a popular thing to sniff with both royalty and the clergy, who also gave it the nickname Father Superior's Powder. Nicot began importing large quantities of tobacco to France, which gave him both fortune and fame. About 150 years after his death, the Swedish naturalist Carolus Linnaeus gave the tobacco plant the botanical name Nicotiana and when the active chemical was isolated in 1828, scientists named it nicotine. Another thing I've noticed is that a lot of listener familect stories have to do with food. (laughs) You probably know that the sandwich is named after the Earl of Sandwich, who liked to eat meat between two slices of bread. Pickles and pralines are also named after people, and all the upcoming listener stories will fit into that category, too.
2: My name is Amy. I live in Northridge, California, and I have a familex story. Uh, My mother-in-law was uh, famous or infamous in our family for serving dessert right after dinner, whether you wanted it or not. And uh, about a year ago, my youngest daughter, who is now 27, started saying that uh, she was going to Mama Janet, because Mama Jan was what we called... Uh, Her grandmother. So, if you, in my family, if you're going to mama jan something, it means you're going to have dessert right after dinner. And uh, that's my story.
1: Thanks, Amy. I can get behind mama janning. I like that. Here's another one I didn't know before, but I've seen popping up a lot more lately Quizling. This one comes from Vidkun Quisling, a Norwegian politician who took over as head of the puppet government when the Nazis invaded and the existing government fled. Quisling was unpopular before the invasion and even less popular after. According to the book Word People by Nancy Caldwell Sorrell, before the invasion, quote, the Norwegian populace generally had only contempt for Quisling and indeed suspected that he was mentally unbalanced. Unquote. Further, when Quisling tried to set up a government, nobody would join. He was ignored by everyone in authority, both Norwegians and most Germans. For example, one time he fired the chief of the Oslo police, and the Germans told him, yeah, never mind him, you're fine. Still, he had Hitler's support and held on to at least the illusion of power, ordering that his portrait be hung in all public buildings and put on postage stamps, for example. After the war, Quisling was arrested and sentenced to death by firing squad. His name lives on, though, to describe a traitor, and especially someone who helps an enemy or invader. And according to Merriam-Webster, Quisling's name took on this meaning a few years before the end of the war, so he would have been aware that it was being used that way. Next, here's a lighter one from a listener. We're back to food.
3: Hello, my name is Dietrich, and I have a Femilek story for you. My family has a term called canoberize, which comes from my late great-grandfather's surname, Kenober. This word is a verb my immediate family and my relatives, descending from him, use for whenever someone eats half of what was at one time the last whole serving of a dish. And it is usually used toward multiple people at the same time. This is a common occurrence with my relatives when they gather for their annual three-day reunion, during which they eat a ton of food. Whether it's lasagna, green bean casserole, or a slice of pie, my relatives have a habit of avoiding being the one to take the last piece. We will take half of the last piece, but none of us wants to be that person known for taking the last piece of a great aunt's dish. Because this habit is so prevalent, both at our reunions and at home, one relative, though I'm not sure which one, coined the term connoverize. And for about a decade, it has been a common word in our vocabulary, although the habit has been around much longer. When cleaning up after a meal and we see a sixteenth of a cookie or one cubic inch of a pie, it is a telltale sign that multiple people have been connoverizing the dish. It has been very fun seeing multiple little siblings pick up the word without even knowing its origin, but fully comprehending its meaning and employing the term properly in their regular conversation. Thanks for your podcast and for the opportunity to share the story. Bye.
1: Thank you. And I'll finish my last segment with a few more quick ones that surprised me. Dunce, which is used to describe someone who's dim-witted, comes from the name of a Scottish scholar named John Duns, who lived in the late 1200s and early 1300s, and who at school was called Duns Scotus, Duns the Scot, in Latin. He was reportedly exceptionally smart, but became embroiled in theological controversies of the day and became known as someone who would focus on small points—a hair splitter, which caused a derivation of his name, dunce, to be associated with focusing on details without real wisdom. And eventually, as so many words see their meaning slide around, it came to mean a person who's stupid." Here's another one. Leotard, the form-fitting, stretchy outfit worn by athletes like gymnasts and ice skaters, comes from Jules Leotard, a 19th-century trapeze artist. And Mausoleum, a large or stately tomb, comes from one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the massive tomb of Mausolus, who was a 4th-century BCE king of a region that's now in Turkey. And now our final listener story.
4: Hey Mignon, it's uh, Joe Guppy from Seattle, Washington, and uh, really like your show. It's super fun. I also teach uh, writing in at uh, in college, Seattle Pacific University to be exact. And I love to recommend your podcast, and I love to look up stuff myself on your website or your or listen to your podcast to pick up. Uh, I wanted to give a family word to you. The word is gentle, and it means to eat something directly out of the pot, mainly the remaining amount of a food that's left in the pot after you've served it. Uh, and someone might hand a pot of, say, beans to another person with a little bit remaining in the bottom, and they would say, would you like to chencil this? Or even if they don't want to have it themselves, they might say, could you chencil this for me? This comes from my mom, and uh, she was raised in the Depression. So you consumed every bit of food. It would be a high waste of money and sustenance not to eat every bit of food. That is to chencil everything out of the pot. Now, where does this come from? Well, it comes from There, uh, my mom's next door neighbor whom she could see across the, uh, the, the courtyard in Chicago through a window when my dad was getting his PhD, uh, in Chicago and her name was Mrs. Jensel and Mrs. Jensel, whenever she was doing the dishes would Jensel a lot of food out of the, the dishes that she was doing or preparing to do. So uh, that's where that came from. All right. Keep up the good work.
1: Thank you, Joe, and all the callers. Remember, if you have a word story, the number to leave a voicemail is eight three three two one four girl Also, the book I referred to earlier, Word People, is absolutely fabulous if you love these kinds of stories, but it was published in 1970 and is out of print. I just happened to run across it in a used bookstore. But if you ever get a chance to buy it, do. Also, my county library doesn't have it, but the university library does, so you might want to check a library. Again, it's called Word People. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl, and my main internet home is QuickAndDirtyTips.com. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sams, And that's all. Thanks for listening.
0: There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September, when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart, every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.